Welcome to Park Church. My name is Matt, and uh, I am glad to see you here. I am one of the, I'm a pastor on staff, soon to not be the only pastor on staff, which actually I'm quite excited about. Um, uh, This week we are wrapping up our series here called Need to Know, uh, what you need to know to have a faith that survives and thrives in this challenging world. Um, We've been looking through this letter to the Philippians all spring, and now it's kind of the summer. Um, This is a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a group of people in a a Greek city called Philippi. They were a group of people who were trying to figure out faith, trying to follow Jesus together, not as big as, as, as many people are in this room right now, but they were trying to do it together. Paul was stuck in prison, and, uh, and so he would write letters. This is one of the letters that we have that survived antiquity. Um, he wrote to the Philippians in order to encourage them, to strengthen them, um, really to tell them what they needed to know to have a kind of faith that could survive and thrive in the midst of a world that wasn't going to be easy. That wasn't going to be easy just towards their faith, but just wasn't going to be easy in general. That was going to be challenged. There was going to be struggle. There was going to be reasons for worry and reasons for anxiety. And um, the need to know that we need to know this morning, given that, is we need to know peace. And uh, peace, this is sort of a wrap-up for the entire series. This, this could have been the theme for the entire letter. Um, peace and joy, these are the two things that come up again and again and again. And we're going to see it here in the, in the last chapter of this letter that Paul wrote, this theme of peace. Because Paul knew that that world then, just like our world today, is filled with reasons not to have peace, with reasons to worry, reasons to stress, reasons to have anxiety. Um, and I know that you know that. I was doing a little work on this topic of peace versus anxiety versus worry this week, and I was, I was talking to a friend of mine who works with kids, and he works with a lot of people who work with kids. And he was saying that, um, like, for one thing, school refusals, people, kids who refuse to go to school because of anxiety is up and up and up every year. Like, year after year, it keeps going up. And, um, you know, they have to take efforts to actually go to kids' homes and try to, like, basically coax them to come to school because of just anxiety. He said he was talking to um, a friend of his who's a child therapist, and he was saying that um, one of the problems they see again and again, more and more and more, is just more anxiety in kids. Um, He himself is a tutor, and so he's like in the home where he's tutoring kids, and like the parents are there kind of hovering, doing their thing, right? And there's just more and more and more anxiety that he sees. He's been doing it for 20 years, and he sees this huge change in these kids. I was listening to a podcast this past week, um, and, and it was talking about the way different generations face different issues and that sort of thing. And there was a stat in the podcast that was just arresting. I, I mean, it just stopped me in my tracks. Um, they did a study of like levels of anxiety and kind of measured anxiety, worry levels across different generations and that sort of thing. Here's the stat. The average high school student experiences the same level, the same measurement of anxiety that a psychiatric patient would have experienced in the 1950s. Isn't that wild? Like the average high school student experiences the same level of anxiety that would have landed you, uh, like you could have gotten admitted into a psychiatric hospital in the 1950s with that same level of anxiety. That's what our kids, that's what, like, you high school kids, um, that's what you face every day. I know for a lot of parents here, 
I think especially moms, you're probably sitting there worrying sick now about your kids. I am raising your anxiety level as I speak, right? I probably don't need to remind you, though, like, this is just kids. You know about your own anxiety. I probably don't need to remind you about the thing that's making you uh, anxious, the thing that's making you worry, right? That, that thing in your family that is just a powder keg that's about to explode, right? Or that thing at your job. I don't have to remind you, like, your job might move to Missouri, right? Or your job just might get eliminated altogether. Or your parents are growing older and there's, there's health concerns and there's sicknesses that you're, that, that you're having to worry and you live with that anxiety every day. Or you can't get it out of your head. You wake up in the morning, you wake up in the middle of the night um, remembering, oh gosh, uh, my son is a time bomb. He's a ticking time bomb waiting to explode. My brother, ticking time bomb. I am a ticking time bomb waiting to explode. We as adults live with this anxiety, with this worry, concern, day after day after day. I probably don't need to do a lot of work to get you to remember that, to get you to feel that. But what if there was news I could share with you? What if there was news that I could tell you that if you actually could find a way to believe it, if you actually could find a way to think it and to feel it and to know it deep inside of you, and you actually could live differently because of it, and you could think differently and see differently because of it and reason differently because of it, if you knew this news, it has the potential to take away all of your anxiety, to take away all worry from your heart, from your mind. Would you want to know what that news is? Of course, of course you would. I'm going to give you the news. Here is the news. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. This, this is the news, that if you got it, if you got what these four words indicate, if you got it, it could absolutely change the way that you face today and tomorrow and every day of your life. If you could actually get it. This is, this is, a, this is a sentence that Paul says in the end of uh, Philippians, in chapter 4 of Philippians. Here's, here's where it goes. This actually continues right from last week. Paul starts chapter 4, or well, verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. He says, rejoice. Again, I got to say it. I'm stuck in prison. I might die tomorrow. I might get executed. I might get a cut that gets infected. Ends, ends Paul's life. Again, I say, rejoice. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be known. The Lord is near. This gentleness thing, I never quite put this connection together, and my friend did it for me. He said, when you're anxious, when you're stressed, are you able to be gentle at all? It's like, no, you're right. When I'm stressed, when I'm anxious, I'm snapping at my wife. I'm snapping at my kids. I'm snapping at our snapping turtles. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, like, but when I'm at peace, I can be gentle, right? I could face my kids in a different way, right? Uh, let your gentleness be known. The Lord is near. This is, this is central to peace. The Lord is near. Um, it's a simple sentence, but I want to dissect it just a little bit because it's important to kind of point out its components, right? The Lord is near. The Lord is the God of the universe. 
The God who created the heavens and the stars and the sun and the moon and set everything in motion and created this planet and the oceans and the land and the plants and the animals, and he created you. This is the Lord who is near. But also this Lord is the Lord who um, became so small that he was uh, conceived in the womb of a woman 2,000 years ago and was born in a dirty manger in a little town called Bethlehem and grew up as a little boy 2,000 years ago in order to be the Lord with us, to be God with us, to be God next to us. God showed himself to us through this little Jesus, through big Jesus, through all the Jesus, right? Um, through his birth and his life, his teaching, his healings, his, his death, and finally, his resurrection. This is the Lord who is near. This is the true God, not the God who waits and watches for you to mess up and error so he can punish you. Not the God who is looking for a reason, searching for a reason to kick you out. Not the God who runs away when the going gets tough. Not the God who turns his face away from you in the midst of pain and suffering. This is the God who turns towards you in the midst of your pain and suffering. This is the God who turns to us. He comes to us, stepping down out of heaven, emptying himself to, to, to serve us, to be God with us and for us, to give himself for us, to suffer with us, for us, on our behalf, in order to save us, to give us life, to wipe the slate clean, and actually to get rid of the slate altogether. This is the Lord that is near, and he is near, which means he is not far. A lot of times we have a tendency to think that when we don't believe the right way or do the right things or act the right way or have messed up enough, God will go away from us because of what we've done. That's not the God that we're talking about here. We're talking about the God who is near, right? He is not far from us because we can't seem to get this faith thing right because we have a tendency to turn and walk away from him. No, his mercy chases after us. He is near. Another translation of this is he is at hand. The Lord is at hand. And I like to think of it like this. Um, when you're teaching your kid to ride their bike, right, you are at hand. Like you literally are there to put your hands on the bike when they start to fall because you don't want your kid to fall and scrape their knee or hit their head, right? You are at hand. That's how near the Lord is to you, right? And sometimes when you're teaching your kid to walk, right, you do have to let them fall. Not so that they get hurt, but so that they can learn. But you are at hand to do what? To pick them up. When they can't walk themselves, when they can't pick themselves up, that's how near the Lord is. To help pick you up. To protect you from falling so far that you can't get back up. To feed you. To heal you. To give you life when all that there is is death in here. Um, the Psalms promise us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The, the Lord is near and saves the crushed in spirit. And the Lord is near. I know Bill Clinton got into a, quite a bit of trouble with the word is, right? But um, the Lord is near. Not the Lord could be near if you finally get your act together. Not the Lord might be. Depending on the time of day or the season of life you're in or the horoscopes or the tarot cards or the way you throw your dice or the whim of the moment. Not the Lord used to be near back when you were a better person. Not the Lord is near if you become a better person. But he is near. His nearness is not dependent on us, our response, 
our behavior, it's dependent on him. And he is the Lord who has decided to turn towards us, to come to be with us, even when we're trying to walk away, even in our rebellion. And so if that is true, if that is actually the case, that the Lord is near and the Lord is trustworthy, and if he's true and if he's helpful and generous and caring and sustaining and life-giving and real, and if the Lord loves you, if that's true, and if you could actually believe that and think like that and feel like that and know that, then what do you have to worry about? Honestly, what do you have to be anxious about? Why would you be afraid? Did you hear the news? The Lord is near. I have nothing to fear. But we all know, and Paul knew it, he's not done, we all know that's not the way it works in reality, right? We have a hard time believing that, actually thinking that, actually living like that, actually knowing it in a way that makes a difference in our lives. And so Paul doesn't stop here, finish the letter, he continues. And what Paul does is he gives us three things, three kind of um, things for us to do. That if we do these three things, it basically guarantees us that we will experience God's peace, that we will find peace. And I want to give a warning here. I am not someone who believes if you do X, Y, and Z, God will do A, B, and C, right? That's dangerous stuff. That's like, if you give your money to me, God will bless you there, right? That's, that's dangerous spirituality. We don't do that here. We can't control God, no matter how hard we might try. I don't think God works like that. He's free. But I want to stick to what Paul seems to say here. It's not a literal equation for peace. But Paul's words, the Bible's words, I want to give you what seems to be kind of an equation for peace. And here's the equation. Pray, pray for the right things. Think about the right things. Do the right things. Add those together, and you will get the peace of God from the God of peace. That's the equation. Pray for the right things. Think the right things. Do the right things. Peace of God from the God of peace. Here's how Paul gets there. He says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And then he continues, as soon as it does this little thing. The Lord is near. He says, do not worry about anything. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. This phrase right there, um, it's also translated, don't be anxious about anything. The Lord is near. What do you have to worry about? Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Out of a thankful heart, ask God for what you need. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to this, because this is, this is so um, uh, amazing and majestic. We're going to come back to that. Paul continues from there. He says, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about them. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. You can see the second part of the equation, the second and third part up there. Think about these things. Do these things things. Thinking and doing. 
When Paul says, think about these things, right? Whatever is true, whatever is just and pure and pleasing, commendable, all of those good things. What Paul is saying there is, um, he's saying, think on these things. Take them into account. When you go about your life, the way you set out to do things, take this stuff into account. Think about it. This is not just sit around and ponder wondrous things. That's something you do in college, like late at night when you have no like, actual responsibility, right? This is, um, this is more like learn to have your mind occupied. Train your mind to think on the good things, to think towards the right things, to be transformed, to have your mind transformed by the things that are good and noble and just and praiseworthy, to have your, your mind transformed by the things of God. Paul is telling us to learn to train our mind to be occupied with the right things in order to learn to think differently, to think in a way that follows after Christ. I know for me and for a lot of people, where does our mind go, though, when we're stressed or when we're anxious or when things aren't going our way? Where does it go? It goes right down that spiral. It goes right down into that hole, right down into that pit. Our mind naturally goes towards all of the things that we um, are worried about, the things that cause us concern. Is, is the person going to get the job? Is my, is my mom going to get better? Is my, is my sister going to be this person for me, right? How's my work review going to do? Who are we going to find to babysit our kids? Like, this whole spiral, it happens. We need to learn to think differently when, when that starts to happen. And in one way, that's what this series has all been about, is coming to know the things that you need to know in order to learn to think differently, right? To live differently, to have a faith that's different. That's what we've been talking about. For as much as following Jesus is um, a faith in action, it's a doing faith, and we're going to talk about that in a second, it's also a thinking faith. It also requires a change of mind, like a real change in here, to have your mind transformed by God so that you don't think according to the patterns of this world, but you think according to what God has done, so that you don't reason according to what makes sense to us, but by what makes sense of what God has done for us in Christ. That's how we think, so that we learn to see, not with the eyes we're born with, but with the eyes that we're born again with. Paul sums this up for us perfectly in a different letter. Um, in his letter to the Romans, he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't, don't allow your mind and your heart, your eyes and your ears and your mouth to follow the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. There is a mind shift, a mind change, a, a transformation that needs to happen so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and commendable and true, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We have to learn to think differently. What Paul is urging us here towards is to give our minds, to give our attentions to the things of God. Because when we don't, we are just so apt. When the going gets tough, the mind starts racing, we start connecting dot after dot after dot, and all of a sudden we are in a pit of inescapableness. Because we have to train our minds to think differently. And in a lot of ways, that's what we've been talking about for the last eight weeks. But it's not just thinking differently, it's also doing differently. For as many times as we forget that faith, Christianity, is a thinking faith, it is also a doing faith. It is a faith in action. That seems to be what Jesus actually cared about, was faith in action. 
And throughout this whole series, if you've been kind of paying attention, we've heard, right? Keep on living confident, fearless, bold, because you know your life is in God's hands, whether it goes your way or not, whether you live or you die. Paul was in prison. He didn't know if he was going to die the next day or not. He could live confident and bold. Keep on doing that. Keep on being of the same mind, being of the same love. Keep on living in the pattern that Jesus showed us. Remember in chapter 2? Emptying yourself for the sake of others. Keep on doing that and you'll get peace. Keep on giving up your seat so someone else can sit. There's peace there. Keep on humbling yourself, laying down your power to serve someone else, to lift up someone else. There's peace there. Keep on suffering for someone else. Peace. Bear one, another bur- bear one another's burdens. Help one another stand firm in faith. You find peace in that. Living forgiving, living justified by faith alone, confident in God's grace alone. Peace. Whether you feel like it or not, and that's really the challenge, right? Whether your faith feels like it or not, Keep on doing the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen. Keep on doing it. What happens if you stop treating your spouse with love just because you stop feeling love? Right? It is a recipe for disaster. Marriage 101 is you treat your spouse with love whether or not you're feeling the love. Right? The same is true of faith. The moment we stop doing the things we've seen and heard and learned because we don't feel it, because we're not on fire for it, because we're not excited about it, that's the moment our faith takes a turn where it was never meant to take. We're meant to keep doing it regardless of how we feel. And that's something that we have to learn. And when we do it, the God of peace will be with you. Think the right things, do the right things. Let's return to the part that I skipped. And I'll, I'll read it again just because, like, this is the kind of thing where, uh, quite frankly, it, it soars. If you could memorize this, put it in your brain, this is the thing to memorize. Do not worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We could look at this passage and say, what gives Paul the right to say this? He sounds like Jesus here. This is something Jesus basically said. What gives him the right? Paul doesn't know my fill-in-the-blank. He doesn't know my family crisis. He doesn't know my health crisis. He doesn't know my work crisis. What gives him the right? But then we remember that Paul, at this point, was stuck in a prison where he literally didn't know if he was going to live or die, right? A cut here or a broken bone would have ended, ended his life. Some local magistrate who's in a bad mood that day could come in and decide, this is the day we execute that guy. That was, that, that was the life that Paul lived. Paul is something of um, an expert. He's an authority on doing life in the face of reasons to be anxious. And he's all rejoice and peace. And it sounds like Jesus, and Jesus is someone He didn't worry about a lot of things throughout his life. He really didn't. And he was someone who lived his entire life in the shadow of the cross, knowing that one day, after his 30-plus years on earth, he would have to walk up that hill carrying this thing and be nailed to it 
without his father around, dying like that. Jesus lived his life in the shadow of that and did it with joy, with hope, with peace. Do not worry about anything because the Lord is near. And Paul says, you know, instead of just telling us, stop worrying, don't worry, right? Anyone who deals with anxiety knows the very worst thing to hear is someone to tell you, stop being anxious, right? Stop worrying, right? Paul isn't that insensitive, right? He doesn't just tell you to stop worrying, right? He gives you something to do. Rather than stewing in the fear, the anxiety, make it known to God. Just make it known to God. That's what prayer is, making it known to God. It, prayer is also praising God for his goodness, and prayer is um, confessing your shortcomings to God, and prayer is thanking God for all that he has done. But at the core of what prayer is, it is just asking. Asking God for what you need. That's what that word supplication, that's what that actually means, to beg for something, to humbly appeal, to plea, to petition, to entreat. Let your requests be known. Paul says, don't worry about anything, but instead in everything. In the situation that causes you all of your anxiety, all of your worry, that's the point where you should be asking God for what you need. In the face of the threat that makes you want to run and hide. In the midst of the heartache. In the place that you have come to fear the most. In the moment where you're so nervous that you feel like your bowels are going to like spill out, right? And explode. In the panic, in everything, just ask. Are your prayers that bold? Is your, is your asking that bold in everything about anything? Is that how bold your prayers are? Do you trust that the Lord is near enough to you that your asking him could actually make a difference? Do you trust that the Lord is near enough to you that you could actually um, release your tight grip on that thing that you are trying to control as hard as you can, but you know you can't? Do you actually think he is near enough to you where you could release that and say, God, I can't do this. I'm going to give it to you. And he actually will be there and make a difference. If not, God's word through Paul's words here are crystal clear, this command, in everything, about anything. I don't think your prayers are probably that big. I don't think uh, your ask is big enough of God. I don't think our ask is big enough of God. And the reason I think that is because I know that my prayers are not big enough. Because my ask is not big enough of God. I hope that you're a little better and a little bigger than me of an asker. But if you're anything like me, it means that you're not big enough. You're not bold enough. You're not in anything, in everything about anything enough. Why? Because I'm just not sure if God's going to listen. Right? Because I don't want to appear as like I'm selfish. Because I don't want to admit that I don't have everything under control. Because I don't want to admit that I can't actually um, do it on my own. I don't want to admit that I can't engineer every outcome. Or maybe it's because I've prayed for something before and that something didn't happen. And so what's the point? I don't quite believe prayer does anything. Or I don't quite believe God cares. Or I don't quite believe God is trustworthy. I've prayed before and the thing didn't change. And I don't want to put myself at risk by putting myself out there again to God. It just hurts too much. So I'm going to hold on to it 
on my own from now on. I have, I, I, I have thought all of these things. I still think some of these things because I have a hard time believing that the Lord is actually near and makes a difference. But Paul reminds us, but in everything, in everything. And notice, he doesn't promise us we'll get what we want. He doesn't promise us the tumor will shrink. Doesn't promise us the bullying will stop, the pain will hurt less, the college will accept us, the girl will take us back, our son will finally get it. Doesn't promise us that. What he does promise us is a peace that we can't make up, that we can't conjure on our own, that we can't even understand, that in the midst of these things that cause us rightfully to be anxious and worried and concerned and fearful, we will have a peace nevertheless that will guard our hearts, guard our minds in a way that like, we can't do that. Only God can do that. In the midst of struggle, in the midst of challenge, in the midst of things that we wish weren't happening, that's the sort of peace that God gives. He's the God of that kind of peace. This letter, it's important to know, this letter was written probably about 60 AD, something like that. Um, Philippi was part of the Roman Empire in those days. It was a Greek city, part of the Roman Empire. Everything was part of the Roman Empire at those days. Um, at that time, the Roman Empire was experiencing something called Pax Romana. I don't know if you've heard of that. You've probably heard that phrase if you watched like Gladiator, that kind of thing, right? Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Pax means peace, the peace of Rome. Um, this was a peace across the empire that was like, established um, when Caesar Augustus defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, right? And it, it went on for about 200 years, whatever. Um, it was like the empire forever was at war. This time they were kind of at peace. They had skirmishes here and there, but they were kind of at peace. But the thing about this peace was that it was a peace that was really, I mean, it was established by just conquer, by conquest. It was established by violence. It was established by um, suppressing rebellions. It was established by fear, coercion. It's a kind of peace that you get when you simply eliminate your opponents, when you enslave everyone who, um, you know, would raise their, 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 their fist in battle against the Roman army, right? It's a kind of peace that's only there because you have destroyed everything in your way. It's not, it's not a real peace at all. That's in contrast to this peace. It's also in contrast um, to the kind of peace that the world offers us today. The peace that our world offers us is basically um, the way to get peace is to eliminate anything that makes you uncomfortable, even in the littlest bit. Just eliminate it, right? Eliminate anything in your life that could potentially put you at risk. Here's what you do. Control every single aspect of your life. Here's what you do. Make enough money, put it in the bank, so that you can live completely self-secure, completely self-reliant. If there is hard times, you save yourself. Then you have peace. And when the barbarians of unpeace come knocking at your gates, you can run into your fortress of uh, reality television and, and, of, and of Candy Crush and of over-medicating and of over-shopping and over-substances and the list goes on and on and on. 
It's a fake peace. Contrast that with the Pax Day, the peace of God. It's peace right there in the midst of struggle, in the midst of pain, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of prison where you don't know if you're going to get out or not. It's a peace that stands firm in the face of the threat, of whatever threat. It's a peace that stands firm in the face of the threat of death. Because this peace has already been to hell and back. This peace, the God of this peace, has already conquered death, has already conquered the enemy, has already conquered the threat that ought to cause us to be anxious. We don't have to be anxious about that anymore because he's already beaten it for us. This is a peace that we truly can't comprehend. I am not in any way um, the authority on uh, seeing people die. A lot of people, I've seen a lot more people die than I have. But in my time as a hospice chaplain, as a hospital chaplain, I've seen a lot of people die. Like a whole bunch of them. And for nonviolent deaths, God gives a certain grace to people, whether you're a believer or not. That's just what happens. But I will tell you, for the people who understand peace like this, for the families who know peace like this, who actually believe the Lord is near, it is, a, it is a passing from this world to the next. It is a death that's unlike anything else that you could experience. Because this thing called death, I mean, this is the thing that ought to threaten us. And they face it with total peace because they believe, like Paul believed, that the Lord is near. And that peace for all of us, for you, for me, for him, and for her, it's a peace that all of us can have. And the way to get it, if I could put it as inartfully as that, is just to ask the right things, to think the right things, and to do the right things, right? And to ask again, it means ask in everything about anything. To think means to, to, to have your mind transformed by it. To do is to keep doing the things that you're meant to do. And you will get peace. And we need to know it. We should know it as his people, as God's people. Paul finishes his letter to the Philippians. I mean, there's some goodbyes and whatnot, but Paul finishes his letter to the Philippians um, basically by giving us a picture of what this peace can look like when you actually uh, believe that the Lord is near. And listen to how he continues. Right after this, you know, think the right things, do the right things. God of peace will be with you. Paul writes, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Um, what Paul means by that is the Philippians wanted to help Paul. He was in prison. He needed food. He needed money, health stuff. They couldn't figure out how to help him. Now they figured out how to help him. That's what he means by that. And then he says, not that I, have, uh, not that I am referring to being in need. What he means is not that I'm worried. Not that I was anxious about being in need. Not that. For I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Imagine, imagine that. Being content with whatever you have, right? That's peace. He says, I know what it is to have little. And I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry. Of having plenty and of being in need. Paul can be content with whatever he has because he has learned the secret. The secret that the Lord is near and there is nothing to worry about. 
life or death, prison or freedom, sickness or health, plenty, want, rich, poor, good or bad, sunshine or rain. I've learned the secret. It's that the Lord is near and he is there um, to be with, to hold, to pick up, to sustain, to carry, to give life, to strengthen. Paul's very next sentence is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is nothing big enough that Paul can't do because he knows the Lord is near to strengthen him. No prison, no beating, no torturing, nothing. The Lord is near. Our hope for you, if you are someone of faith, is that, is that you come to know that and believe that and allow yourself to be transformed by that more and more and more. That that's what you ask for. That that's what you um, think about. That that's what you work toward. That's what you do. And if you're someone this morning who is not someone of faith, who has no idea about this peace, who doesn't believe any of this, our hope is that you could come to believe it. This is what you're invited into. Um, a relationship with God where you know he's near and he gives uh, peace, joy, where he gives strength at all times, in all places, in all ways, um, in all circumstances. That's what we invite you into uh, here at Park Church this morning and every morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way that you have given yourself so gracefully and abundantly and mercifully so that we could know you and trust you so that we could count on you being at hand to pick us up when we fall to save us from falling into into a pit that we can't possibly get out of lord that whether we are standing or whether we are falling whether we are running fast or whether we are being knocked down, you are with us. We thank you that you are that kind of God and not a God who runs away. Lord, for each and every one of us here in this room right now, we pray that you would, that you would show your presence to us, that you would speak your goodness to us, that you would remind us of where you are, of where we are. Lord, we ask that you would... Um, Relieve from us the things that we have to be anxious about, to worry about. They're real things. They are. And they cause us anxiety and worry and fear and concern. And they cause us health problems and everything else. We know that. But we pray, Lord, that you would transform our minds not to be uh, so damaged by anxiety. We pray that you would help us to do the right things and generate, find peace in our lives. Lord, but most, um, most importantly, God, we pray that you would help us to pray. Put that on our hearts, that in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the hospital room that we don't want to be in, in the midst of the drive home from the interview that didn't go well, we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to pray. Help us to ask you, to call on you. Show us again that you're there for us, that you're with us, that you're carrying us. Lord, help us to fix, to fix our eyes on you, to trust in you, to put it all in your hands and to trust that no matter the danger that we're in, so, so safe we will go from here. 
We lift all this up to you, Jesus, and continue to sing it in prayer. Uh, pray it in song. In your name we pray. Amen.